Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the TM245 Homiletics Podcast. I know we've not been doing many lectures the previous weeks, but this week's going to be a bit different. We're focusing extensively on the subject of cultural intelligence and preaching as you are working through and preparing your book summary for the Kim book, Preaching with Cultural Intelligence. So if you've not started that book, I hope that you go ahead and do so soon. Um, and while it's at the very end of the class, I don't want to give you the misperception that this is an unimportant issue. It's actually something that's quite important, uh, particularly in your generation, I believe, for individuals who plan to become preachers, or for that matter, who are planning to be involved in any sort of ministry that will require you to either teach uh, or evangelize others. So this subject of cultural intelligence is something that extends far beyond the discipline of homiletics. But the particular text written by Kim assumes that you know the basics of how to preach. So I wanted to put it later in the course after those basics are laid down. Okay, so with that bit of explanation, our goal today is going to be introducing the idea of cultural intelligence. I'm going to do that partly through a PowerPoint slide I have, uh, PowerPoint 3.1, Preaching with Cultural Intelligence, Part 1. But I'm also going to do it partly with some personal stories. You see, like many things in homiletics, this is a lesson that is best learned through experience and interaction. And so much of the lesson plan for today was originally involving interactive exercises. Of course, we can't manage that very well digitally. Um, so instead, I thought I would share with you several stories of experiences in my life that have led me to recognize where I lacked cultural intelligence and why this is important in preaching before I move on and explain more extensively what cultural intelligence is. One of the first experiences that really awakened me to this situation is when I was on a mission trip while a senior in high school in Costa Rica. We were in a region called La Carpio, which was populated primarily with Nicaraguan refugees. They had built essentially a shanty town on top of what used to be a garbage dump, finding whatever scrap they could to build very meager um, homes and businesses and churches. After spending several days in the community, it was Sunday, and we had been invited to one of the local churches there in Costa Rica. Now, I had taken Spanish in high school, but I still did not know very much about the language, and certainly not enough to keep up very quickly with, or very thoroughly, with the sermon that was being preached. I remember the pastor frequently speaking about the Palabra del Dios, the Word of God, but beyond his repeated turning to the Word of God, which helped me to see it was a biblical sermon, I really didn't understand much of the rest of the content. But that actually was an interesting opportunity for me, because that language barrier allowed me to focus on the preacher's body language, the responsiveness of the congregation, um, and his means of delivery. Uh, the preacher was very high in energy. He was animated, moving back and forth across the open space where the microphone had been set up. Uh, there wasn't much of a pulpit or even much of a stage, given the uh, somewhat outdoor nature of the congregational gathering here. Um, but he was able to get the entire congregation extremely excited into the sermon. There were hands raised. Individuals even danced at points of time during his sermon. And I realized that with all of his volume and back-and-forth dialogue and engagement with the congregation, that this was a very different style of preaching than I'd ever encountered in Baptist churches in North Carolina. 
Sure, sometimes there was energy, but by and large, the congregation sat and listened, and the preacher spoke. And very rarely was there a back-and-forth engagement in terms of delivery there. Um, even though I didn't understand any of the language, his attitude, his posture, the responses from the congregation helped me to have some sense, some very basic sense, in terms of what the sermon was about. So that is one experience I wanted to share. Another experience came sometime later when I was in seminary and serving an internship in a federal prison complex. I was a chaplain intern. My first internship there focused primarily on pastoral care and counseling, but my second internship took a shift and began to focus on preaching. So I preached about half a dozen sermons in different prison contexts to different uh, incarcerated audiences. This was shortly after Barack Obama had first been elected as president, and you may or may not remember, but he was given a Nobel Peace Prize uh, as a result of his pledges to end uh, U.S. warfare and interventionism in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. Um, it was in that context where I was preaching and touching on questions of the ultimate peace that God provided that I was able to raise a question about this peace prize. I didn't intend, of course, to say anything negative about Obama. I didn't mean to weigh in politically, but there were many who raised the question about whether he could legitimately be given a peace prize, given that conflict was still ongoing. He had merely pledged peace, but had not yet brought it about. I brought that example up to illustrate that even champions of peace in this world cannot sufficiently secure peace in comparison with the peace that God promises through Jesus Christ. I think it's a true theological point. However, I paid, failed to pay attention to my context. The congregation was predominantly minorities, and among the minorities, the vast majority of them were in fact black. And when I mentioned Obama and raised a question about whether he could bring lasting peace, several individuals were visibly upset, and a few others actually got up and left the service. Uh, needless to say, this made me a little bit worried, because a prison is not the place that you want to make enemies. I was a little worried about being attacked or shivved or something. Um, bit of humor there, but only slightly. Anyway, after the service, I was able to talk to several individuals who explained to me that my intellectual point was true, and yet I was preaching to a group of men who had experienced a life where no one who looked like them and shared their ethnicity had fulfilled the highest office of the land. Many of them were old enough that they had lived through Jim Crow. Many of them had experienced long-standing injustices in the prison system, which explained why they got larger sentences than white counterparts on average. Uh, many of them had experienced racism within the walls of the prison and outside before the prison. And so for them, Obama stood, and rightly so, as a symbol of hope and of possible transformation and justice. And I had said something negative about this symbol without very much context or clarity, simply in passing, and it was certainly understandable that many would be frustrated and think that I was simply another white Republican evangelical coming in intent on critiquing the deep social needs that they felt were beginning to be heard through the election of President Obama. This was a context where I had failed to understand uh, really how my audience was looking at the situation in a different context from me, even though all of them would be willing to admit that any peace President Obama would bring could not compare with the peace that Jesus Christ offers. 
A third example comes shortly after my arrival as a professor at Sterling College. I had an individual in one of my basic Christian doctrine classes that came to me and wanted to me to ask questions about how he could accept Christianity if it was the religion of the slaveholders. And I have to admit that I really didn't have much in the way of a response to this student. I had not studied the reasons why many Christians supported slavery, nor had I extensively uh, researched theological arguments against slavery. I certainly thought it was immoral and was able to offer something rather superficial, but it is not a question that had ever really presented itself to me. I tell you these three stories to help us prepare to understand uh, the basic methodology that Kim offers in his textbook. Kim is going to challenge us to build a bridge and to consider dialect. So when he speaks of building a bridge, he wants us to pay attention to the beliefs and the rituals and the idols and the idea of God and the experiences that our congregation or other audiences for our sermon might have had. The example of my lack of ability to answer the questions of my student in BCD, even though I wasn't preaching to him, illustrates that I was not yet able to build that bridge. What experiences did he have that led him to ask this question? What beliefs might he have about Christianity? What misconceptions might he have about God as a result of white Christian endorsement of chattel slavery and the transatlantic slave trade? None of these questions were things that I had raised to myself before. And I have to admit that I, I did a fairly poor job of helping the student think through these questions. But that's one reason why I've tried to learn and educate myself and why that's become increasingly significant, for example, in Historical Theology too, a class that many of you have been a part of this semester, where one thing that we explore is the sorts of distorted and twisted exegesis that white American Christians would use in defense of slavery, as well as the responses to these misinterpretations and atrocities that were made by a number of black American Christians. Now, that content aside, this is but one of many examples that show what can happen if you are unable to build a bridge by thinking about the beliefs and rituals, idols, ideas of God, and experiences of others. You will not be able to answer the fundamental questions that they might be bringing to church uh, and seeking an answer for. When we turn to dialect, Kim is going to encourage us that we need to pay attention to our method of delivery, the illustrations that we use our application points, our language, embrace, content, and trust. I think the other two stories that I've shared illustrate that I was not preaching with a sufficiently culturally intelligent di dialect. So my illustration of Obama, I had not paused to think about how it would be received. I'm using an illustration. It's one that seems fairly un uncontroversial to me, but I had not paid attention to my audience and I caused serious offense. Another question I hadn't asked is whether I had built the necessary trust. I was an intern. I'd only been a part of the prison complex for about six months at this point. Um, and during that time, I had gone to a number of different units. So I'd only really been at this unit three or four times before. A handful of people in the audience knew who I was. One or two had had meaningful conversations with me in terms of pastoral care. But the vast majority actually viewed me as a complete stranger. Without that trust, I likely wouldn't get the benefit of the doubt for a very brief uh, aside that I might make in a sermon. By the way, 
Similar problems were no doubt a factor in the controversy that erupted after the tree lighting ceremony and sermon uh, by interim chaplain Dean Jaderston last year. He touched on a very controversial topic as an aside, as an illustration. He fumbled his wording a little bit, and in that context, without sufficient clarity or understanding what the audience might be, uh, how they might be invested in this question, uh, it's no surprise at all to me that it erupted into a huge controversy. And as the controversy unfolded and more mistakes were made, it just grew even larger and larger. These are the sorts of mistakes that cultural intelligence will help us to avoid in preaching because they can be detrimental to your ministry and they can actually bring about harm uh, to individuals who are coming to church in order to seek knowledge of the true God and Savior. If they're driven away from that church because of insensitivity, not only is their soul at stake, but there might be considerable emotional turmoil. Finally, when we think about dialect and look at the question of delivery, it occurs to me that the Costa Ricans from the congregation I was visiting would think if they saw me preaching today that I am not devout or passionate, that I am not filled with the Spirit because of my mannerisms. Culturally, their expectations for how a preacher should present himself were radically different from the cultural expectations that I brought to a sermon, having been raised in a different society, different socioeconomic class, different ethnicity, different language group, and so forth and so on. If I were to go on mission and to preach my typical style of sermon in Costa Rica, I would probably be quite ineffective, much in the same way that if this Costa Rican pastor came to my home church in North Carolina, he would probably be met with pretty great skepticism. So these three stories illustrate why it's important to be able to build the bridge and speak with an appropriate dialect, as Kim is talking about. No doubt you may have some experiences of your own that would reinforce this, but if you don't yet, I assure you that in due time, if you ever do try and cross any cultural boundaries like this, the need for cultural intelligence will become obvious. So let me say a little bit more finally about what cultural intelligence is. We'll get into further details in our next lecture. Generally speaking, cultural intelligence refers to a person's ability to adopt to new cultures. The idea of cultural intelligence comes from P. Christopher Early and Soon Ong, who did some work in actually a business context, uh, exploring how intercultural interactions might be more effective in a marketplace, in a particular firm. However, these ideas have gradually made inroads into ministry contexts. So oftentimes, the professors who teach the class that you must take prior to a short-term mission trip here We'll use a text by David Livermore, focusing on missions and cultural intelligence. So this idea of adapting to new cultures usually requires two elements. There's what's known as a self-regulatory process and a self-criticism or self-evaluation process. The regulatory process happens in real time. So as I'm interacting with someone who might be different from me in terms of gender or culture or ethnicity or language, I have to have an ability to process what they're saying, to act appropriately, to react to what they offer me, and to monitor my actions and reactions so that I can identify whether or not they are being received well. This aspect of cultural intelligence really can only be built through practice and experience. And there are plenty of sociological studies that show uh, the more extensively your interaction is with individuals from different cultures, 
the more effectively you are able to communicate within that culture. However, cultural intelligence also includes an evaluative component. It requires some self-criticism, where you're willing to step back and consider your gifts and abilities and the content of the information you're providing, somewhere like a sermon, to determine how effectively that might be received in a given cultural context. It's the second aspect of cultural intelligence that is going to be most successfully practiced in this class context and through reading the book by Kim. So I hope you use the book and this component of the course as a genuine time to sit down and reflect with yourself and expose areas where you might be ill-prepared to engage peoples of all nations and cultures. Okay, why, why do we want to pursue cultural intelligence? Uh, well, cultural intelligence is something that requires great motivation. And I doubt that many of you would say, oh, this is a bad thing. I don't want it, but you might not realize how good of a thing it is to have cultural intelligence and to be able to navigate cultural differences like this. In fact, it's a central biblical concern, and if I had time, I could provide an exhaustive lecture or even a series of lectures on where this appears in the Bible. It's a central theme of many prophetic texts. It's the central theme of Paul's writings, it's major hope for the eschatological return of Christ, and so forth and so on. But for now, I'll simply give you three points. The first is that sound pastoral theology avoids stumbling blocks. So systematic theology is a theology that is attempting to uh, break down Christian beliefs into distinct ideas based on scripture and reason and tradition and experience, and then to organize those ideas in relation to one another so that they can help us to think clearly about God. Pastoral theology is different. Pastoral theology is aiming to care for those individuals that we have given, been given stewardship of, either through formal roles as deacons or elders or pastors or what have you, or informally through discipleship relationships that we may build. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul makes an extended case for why it is that he tried to become all things to all people. His goal there was to win others to Christ, but he recognized if he had this pastoral goal of helping disciple others and evangelize others, he had to be able to present the gospel in a manner that would be received as good news and that would not cause offense, except for that offense that is normally caused as a gospel challenges any and all cultures in terms of their sinful ideas and idolatry. In other words, when Paul comes in pre presenting the gospel to Gentiles, he doesn't want to drive them away from the gospel because of a ritual that he does not believe is required for Gentiles. However, he does want to do due justice to the biblical teaching about these rituals to address them in a God-honoring way. And so, when we are trying to bring the gospel to different congregations and different audiences, we would do well to also avoid stumbling blocks. But if we can't know where other people are coming from, how can we present the gospel to them in a manner that does not lead them to stumble? Second, part of the ministry of Christ is in fact his uniting all peoples in himself. The doctrine of union tells us this, the aspect of union that we might call incorporation. Christ is the head, and we are the body, and each member of the body has a particular gift. 
and no member of the body can say to any other member of the body that it is unneeded. This is Paul's clear teaching in 1 Corinthians 12. Similarly, Jesus prays in John 17 that all believers would be one in a way similar to, similar to how he and the Father and the Spirit are one. However, we live in a world that is defined in many respects by differences in economic class and in language, by differences in culture and race, by differences in gender and sexual orientation. If we're not able to recognize the significance of these differences, we cannot seek a unity between ourselves and those who are different from us. And yet this is the goal that Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are about as Christians. As Ephesians puts it, Christ has come to break down the dividing walls of hostility between us so that we may be one in Christ. This is going to require cultural intelligence, or CQ for short, for us to be able to carry out in person. Third, and finally, another motivation to learn cultural intelligence is that we are called in the Bible, Colossians 2.8, to reject vain and deceitful philosophies. But if we're unaware of cultural differences, quite often we might find that the doctrine that we are preaching, and perhaps even part of the gospel that we are preaching, is actually merely a reflection of our culture and not of sound theological truths. Part of understanding different cultures and being able to navigate those differences will be recognizing ways that your own culture may have distorted your understanding of God and of the gospel. So cultural intelligence can enable us to further this goal of rejecting such vain and deceitful philosophies. So those are three important motivations for cultural intelligence. One final point that I'd like to make here concerns how cultural intelligence actually unfolds. Cultural intelligence requires both process and content features. So by process features, I'm referring to how you process information. As communication happens, you are going to be receiving information, either as feedback after a sermon or through body language as you're preaching to others. Increased cultural intelligence will allow you to evaluate that information, to categorize it, and to interpret it. Without cultural intelligence, not only might you be sticking your foot in, the, in your mouth, you might be oblivious to the fact that you're doing this. But second, cultural intelligence also involves content. You need to know certain amounts of information about other cultures, other social classes, and so forth and so on. The more you know, the more effectively you can preach to them. One goal of exegetical and expository sermons is to exegete your audience. So remember, way back at the beginning of the class, I talked about expository sermons as an ellipse. They have two focal points, the biblical text and the cultural context of your audience. The less information you know about that content, context, excuse me, the less effectively you can preach. So it's important not only that you develop a process for navigating cultural difference, but that you're actually building the content of what you know about other cultures. I try to incorporate some of this into ministry classes, but honestly, this should be a big goal of yours as you move into ministry, recognizing the specific subcultures and cultural differences in whatever ministry context you find yourself, and then doing your best through conversation, mostly listening, and through reading uh, in order to best understand those contexts. So, 
that's cultural intelligence in a nutshell, uh, how it worked, and why it is vital for ministry as a whole, but particularly for the preacher. In our next lecture, I'll go into a little bit more depth what this looks like in the actual sermon prep process. But until then, please keep reading in Kim. The content he's giving is much more substantive than what I'm able to give. Um, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks for listening and be well.